History is the training ground where the student learns how to organize and evaluate information, and that's the goal of classical education, to produce an adult who can take in new knowledge, evaluate its worth, and then discard it or put it to good use. That quote is from the book The Well-Trained Mind by Susan Weiss Bauer and Jesse Weiss. This book, The Well-Trained Mind, is basically what Tim Ferriss's new book is, Tools for Titans. It, it's that, but it's for people who want to do a classical education style homeschool. I got, this, I got the idea for this book from the movie Captain Fantastic, which stars Viggo Mortensen, and it's about this father who lives off the land with his kids. And there was a real essence to that movie that appealed to me, that there was deep, important knowledge that was out there and accessible. You just had to put in the time to do it. And then after some reading, I found that The Well-Trained Mind is a book that was either influential to the uh, creators of that movie or it was something that was given to the cast to read in preparation for the movie. But whatever the context was, The Well-Trained Mind was a really helpful book to, uh, to introduce me to the classical education. And what I most appreciate about this book, the thing that I'm really going to take away is, is that the authors explain that education is really a piece-by-piece situation. And if you're going to do a homeschool education in the classical style, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, break things into three parts. There's going to be the elementary part, there's going to be the middle part, and then there's going to be the basically the high school part. And each part of those things has different skills that you're going to build up. So during the early years, it's really um, a focus on the facts of the world and the facts of mathematics and how words are spelled and what words mean. And then as you go through that beginning stage and you get to the middle stage, you start to combine facts and put things together and uh, maybe solve for equations. And then then the third stage, the logic stage, um, high school students have to use the facts, put them together, and draw conclusions and expand on ideas. And the way that um, Susan and Jesse explain the curriculum is that those three things will be cycles. So when you're learning history, there's four years of history in each cycle. And so you do ancient history, and then you do, and then you do through modern history in the first four years. But then when you get to the the, the fifth year, you do the ancients again, but you do that reading more difficult texts. And that's like a ledge to stand on. They write that the classics aren't so hard to understand once you've seen it before. And I want to learn the classics. That's something that I personally want to learn, but it's also something I want to pass down to my kids. And so when I went to the library, I got the picture books of the classics. So I have Beowulf, and I have the Odyssey, and I have books like that that are written specifically for children as an introduction to the characters and the words and the language. And sometimes when we're learning things, we, we get so caught up in learning the newest thing or learning the latest thing, and we, we forget, we skip, we miss the foundation stage. We miss the grammar stage of learning. And the well-trained mind makes it really clear that you have to get the foundation right. You have to understand those basic things before you can really move on to the other things. And even if you have to start at the elementary level, like I'm going to do with some of these classics, because I'm going to learn them alongside my kids, that's fine. And that was a really uh, nice reminder about learning, that sometimes you have to swallow your pride or not let your ego get in the way and start with simple things. One.
This week I read The New New Thing by Michael Lewis, and I had remembered it including more about Netscape uh, than the book actually does, but the book focuses on Jim Clark, who uh, is a really interesting person, and he fits with the archetype of founders that uh, come up a lot in these autobiographies and these business books. Clark, for example, was expelled from high school after he told a teacher to go to hell, after he set off a small bomb on the school bus, and after he smuggled a skunk into a school dance, among other tricks. So Clark has this, got this attitude that, that he doesn't like the way the world is, and the existing things that he sees is bullshit. And so he's got that perspective, and only with someone with that perspective do they really move the needle, do they, do they tend to change things. So Clark joins the military and he doesn't like that, and then he goes on and he gets his mathematics degree at, uh, in New Orleans, and then he goes on and he does uh, masters and he does PhD work, and along the line, uh, he's, his natural skills are harnessed, his natural abilities are brought out by teachers who either teach in the right way or conditions where he can learn in the right way. So we have someone here who was expelled from school, expelled from high school for doing these other things, and then he goes on to get an undergraduate degree and then a master's degree and a PhD, and those two things don't seem to mesh together. And I think part of the reason is, is that... Um, college and graduate school and your doctorate work all allows you to explore things that interest you, whereas the high school curriculum is really prescribed to you. There's not a lot of wiggle room. You have to be there the full day. I remember in my own personal experiences, uh, when I was in high school in the state of Ohio, there was this thing called post-secondary option, where uh, if you applied for and were accepted, you could go take college classes during the day versus taking high school classes. And so while my peers were taking English, English literature, I was taking Composition 1 at the high school level. So maybe that contributes to why I don't know the classics, but I also know that I was way more motivated and organized, and I was striving towards a goal when I was taking English composition at a local community college compared to English literature in classical English stories at my high school. And that seems to be the case with Clark, too, is once he had something that he could choose to pursue, he was really motivated to go ahead and do it. Another concept in this book that was very helpful were the similars and the, and, and the, and the parallel instances from companies in the 1990s uh, technology space to companies that are in the current 2015-2020 technology space. And in the book, you can really see um, Microsoft is like Amazon is today. Microsoft was really this behemoth in the industry. In fact, Jim Clark is always saying that, that he needs to do the next thing so quickly. He needs to do the new, new thing so quickly because once Microsoft gets a whiff of it, they're going to come in and they're going to take over everything. There's this, there's this attitude that, that Microsoft is going to dominate Netscape, which it goes on to somewhat do, and that they're going to take on Yahoo after that. And there's no mention of Google, and there's no mention of the current technology companies, only Microsoft. So the big fear at the time was that Microsoft was so large, and that they would go in and they would dominate any industry. Clark gets the idea for a healthcare uh, company, and he's afraid too that if he doesn't get a critical mass fast enough, Microsoft will come in. And in the book, uh, Michael Lewis writes that, that Microsoft had two advantages that, that outsiders saw. Jim Clark was 
scared of two things of Microsoft. One was the billions to funnel in to the browser market, and two was the advantage of owning the operating system. So that's why he was scared for Netscape. And we can see that with Amazon. Amazon has all this cash flow that they can funnel into the, the content area, for example, or uh, the package delivery area or some of the same-day delivery shops. And people are afraid of Amazon pushing in. They're using their billions to funnel into this certain business and take it over. But in the same way that, that Microsoft hasn't expanded like Jim Clark uh, expected and Michael Lewis wrote about, I don't think we can expect to Amazon for Amazon to expand. On the day I'm recording this podcast, the top five uh, stocks and market cap are all technology stocks. And so we see technology as this big thing uh, and we see these companies as insurmountable. They're like giants. They're like Goliaths that um, we just can't imagine how they're going to topple. But in the same way that David topples Goliath, we know that no technology company is permanent. Microsoft, for as large of a role it plays in the new, new thing, if there was an updated edition of this book, it would probably include a footnote from Michael Lewis about how wrong some of the key technology players were about Microsoft's dominance. Another interesting wrinkle from this book that can apply today was how similar Jim Clark seemed to the Snapchat founder, Evan Spiegel. And Netscape had a big pre-bubble uh, buildup. Netscape was a new direction for Jim Clark. It wasn't uh, television, which he thought would be big, but it was the internet, which he thought would be big. It had uh, imitators very quickly, like Microsoft creating the Internet Explorer browser. And uh, Netscape had really unique financing. There was one venture capitalist who said, um, quote, no engineer had ever cut such a deal, end quote. So Jim Clark was able to get a valuation that no one else had ever gotten before in Silicon Valley. And if we look at Snapchat, we can look back and say, um, in 2007, did Snapchat release its IPO into a, into a bubble that was soon to be popped? Did Snapchat create a new direction? Yeah, yeah, they did. They, they focused on pictures rather than messages. And, and rather than the feed, um, it, the stories are told um, like you would tell a story from, from start to, to end. And that's what Instagram has, has went ahead and copied. Does Snapchat have imitators? Yeah, that, yeah, like Instagram. And, and does Snapchat have unique funding? Yeah, there's no, there's no voting shares for, for uh, the Snapchat IPO. So both... Netscape and Snapchat have these interesting founders, these founders who are really driven by something, who have interesting demands, like, like what they expect shareholders to put up with. And so we can read the book, The New New Thing, even though it's, it's getting close to being 20 years old, and the some of the stories are more than 20 years old, but we can read it um, and see the current technology landscape through um, this prism that, that, that these things have happened before and these things will happen again and if we keep in mind that behemoths like Microsoft aren't the huge companies that we would have expected them to be if we had plotted their growth it would have been all up and to the right and that hasn't been the case for Microsoft and that won't be the case for some of technology's leaders today. Two. Melanie Whelan is the SoulCycle CEO, and she did a good podcast with Tony Robbins where she talked about what it was like to run a company that really focuses on the, uh, the consumer. She even said, quote, we are a hospitality company, end quote. And a lot of what uh, Whelan said about SoulCycle is also true for what Danny Meyer said about his 
uh, restaurant companies. Danny Meyer, after reading his book, Setting the Table, really isn't in the restaurant business. He's in the taking care of people business. And if he had a inclination as a kid to go into something like um, medical care, then, then Meyer would have this same structure set up, but he would be serving medicine rather than, than serving food in his restaurants. And Wieland has a lot of the same uh, philosophies as Meyer. So if you, if you like Meyer's philosophy, if you believe in taking care of the customer, if you're believing in having uh, the final say in a conversation, if you believe in decentralized command, if you believe in virality and vertical control of the experience, you'll be, you'll be good to either listen to Whelan or, or to go ahead and read Meyer's book. Both Whelan and Meyer, for example, believe in the 51% solution, and that's the idea of you need to hire someone with the right attitude and not necessarily the right skills. Skills, Meyer and Whelan note, can be taught. It's easy to teach someone to use a chef's knife. It's easy to teach someone how to sell soul cycle merchandise or to check people in or to lead a class. Those things are easy, but the attitude of growth and learning and taking initiative and being curious and learning from your mistakes and owning owning your mistakes, those are all intangibles that are much, much harder to teach and you need to get people that just automatically have those things. So if you're a leader of an organization, you need to be thinking about the 51% solution for whatever your business is. What are the key things that are really hard to teach that you just need built into a situation? You need people where that's their default state and everything else you can build on top of that. Ray Kroc realized this when he was building out McDonald's. At first, Kroc signed an agreement with the McDonald's brothers that he was only going to franchise out the locations, and he would get a certain percentage of um, what it cost to build out this location from the McDonald's brothers, but he wouldn't actually own it. He didn't own McDonald's for the first decade or so of his involvement with the company. But eventually he realized that this small percent, like something like 2% of, of the uh, restaurant uh, profits would go back to Kroc, but that was a really small amount. He needed this huge scale to really make some serious money uh, using this system. So he decided to, to just be the franchisor. He would go ahead and he would own and he would operate and he would run McDonald's franchises rather than selling that option, selling that feature to other people. And Kroc said that when he opened his first restaurant outside Chicago, he needed someone to run it. Kroc never had food service experience. He was never in the kitchen flipping burgers or dunking fries. And so he needed to hire somebody that could do those things. And the first person he hired was a hardware uh, salesman. And the reason he hired this guy is because this guy was young and ambitious and hungry and he was willing to learn these different things. And so Kroc realized, without articulating it in his book, that there's a 51% solution. You need to get per someone who is ambitious and hungry and all of those things and then, and then go ahead and just, just teach them the rest. Three. Dennis McDonough was on the Ezra Klein show. Uh, McDonough was the chief of staff for President Barack Obama during his last four years in office. And his interview with Ezra, Ezra Klein was pretty good. Sometimes political figures will go on an interview show and they'll entirely talk politics. And sometimes that's okay if that's what you want. But most of the time, that's not what I'm looking for. What I want to hear is something that, that spreads across domains. It's true in politics, but it's also true for leaders and other organizations. And McDonough has a few parts of this interview with Klein that are just absolutely excellent for any kind of leader. And basically it all boils down to is, are you somebody that is going to 
always be learning and always be reading and thinking about a situation well enough that you can explain both sides. This is what um, McDonough says that there's, there's three things that a successful candidate for president, or uh, really, uh, you, we, we can expand this, a successful candidate for any leadership position. There's, there's three things that they have to be do. Quote, one, I think you want the president to be well-read and constantly updating on that. Two, discipline. Three, openness to argument. You don't want an ideologue in there. You want someone willing to learn new ideas, end quote. So just in this one quote, we see that you have to be disciplined to be regularly reading, and you have to be constantly updating your beliefs, and you want to be someone who is willing and open to learning new things. This is really similar to what Philip Tetlock writes about in his book, Super Forecasting. Super forecasters are people who are always reading and taking in new information and trying to figure out what information is important and what information is not. And to McDonough, that was something that, that President Obama did a lot when he was in office. And, and to touch on the other side of the political spectrum, that's something Karl Rove said George W. Bush did a lot in office too. Both presidents were, were very well-read men in trying to understand a lot of different things. And the reason you want to be well-read is you want to understand both sides of a situation. Charlie Munger likes to say that you need to know the other side as well as or better than the other person that you're talking to. And McDonough says this is true for a, a, a leader in, in any sense. This is what he said to, to Ezra Klein. Quote, What the American public should expect is that he's spending the kind of time to prepare for his decisions on issues commensurate with the impact it will have on the American people's lives. If you run into a citizen on the street who is impacted by a decision you made, do you feel that you could argue to that person that, I know this impact on you has been significant, but I spent a long time really thinking about it and considering the alternatives. I know it has impacted you in a negative way, but the national interests have been advanced in the following way. Rather than saying, my gut told me this was the best thing to do, end quote. So, so there McDonough is saying that, if you're the president, if you're a leader, if you're making decisions that have an impact on other people, you need to know both sides. You need to say, I know that this was maybe a small loss for you, but on the whole, this is a collective gain. This is something that, that everyone is going to benefit from, even though you personally may, may be losing something. Being around uh, President Obama, McDonough uh, learned to always be learning. He, he adopted this mindset of, of to be reading and expanding his horizons. And he said another inspiration was Duke men's basketball coach, Coach K. And Coach K was doing an interview about why he was uh, coaching the USA basketball team. He didn't need to. He has you know more than enough money. He, he's got a stable job at Duke. He's got a comfortable job at, at, at Duke University. And so somebody was asking him, you know, Coach K, why are you doing this? Why are you involved in the men's basketball team? And, and Coach K said that he wanted to keep learning. He wanted to to talk to NBA players and see what they were doing and try different leadership styles out for NBA players and see where his Duke basketball players were going. And so, and so McDonough says he created this sign he put on his desk and he said, what and where am I learning today? So there's this mindset of growth, this mindset of having the right attitude, this mindset that you're always going to be learning because it's going to help you make decisions and that those decisions can affect other people.